bring you up to date where we were last time and show you where we're going to go tonight, Lord willing. Uh, the, the topic in this long series on, on the providence of God was uh, the providence of God over the wills of individual people. You know, we, we talked about the providence of God over weather and we talked about the providence of God over nations and so on. Um, and the implication has always lain there very close beneath the surface that for him to do all of this ruling, it sounds like he has the right and the authority to also direct the wills of individual people. And, and uh, what we saw was that that's true. God does have the ultimate influence over the wills of people. I'm not going to walk through these texts again, otherwise we'd wind up just where we were at the end of last hour. I'm just going to show you the questions we posed with all my markings still on them. God influences and enables our willing as we ought. We are slaves to will thin without the influences of God's sovereign grace. Texts on that. God's sovereign grace overcomes our blindness and hardness and slavery to sin. And that's where we stopped last week. God over... On this one? There wasn't one on this page. You mean... First one? I don't remember an Ecclesiastes verse. Lamentations? Yeah. 3, 37 38. These, these will be available in the file cabinet upstairs in case you want all the texts gathered together for you. Now, um, I'm going to show a few more texts on that last point that God's Sovereign grace overcomes our blindness and hardness and slavery to sin. That's how we got saved. But before I do that, I want to tell you where we're going to go tonight and put it in a context because of something I've been reading the last few days. Uh, we're going to look at some verses that show God's power to bring us out of darkness to light and change our wills so that we trust Him. And then we're going to look at the texts that talk about God's will and desire for all people to be saved, like 1 Timothy 1, uh, 2, 1 to 4. And then we're going to ask the question, does he have two wills? Uh, does he will one thing and a different thing? Or is his will divided? And then we're going to take a little survey of whether that's possible or not biblically. Can you conceive of of a, a divine mind that can will two things that uh, exclude each other. Now, the reason that's a crucial question is because there's a hot debate. There always has been, but it's hot today. I've got this essay here that was sent to me that's going to be printed probably this summer in the Scholars Review, Christian Scholars Review. It's called... Can a Christian justifiably deny God's exhaustive knowledge of the future? Can a Christian justifiably deny God's exhaustive knowledge of the future? By David Bassinger of Roberts Wesleyan College. And of course his answer is, he can. And he does deny it. Whether it's justifiable or not is open to question, but I want you to hear, you need to know the kind of things that in evangelical schools and seminaries are being said today to my absolute dismay. And uh, I'll just read you a couple of par few paragraphs here. In other words, this, this is an essay intended to argue that you can believe the Bible and deny that God knows the future actions of free moral agents. In other words, God does not know, except with fairly high degree of probability, 
what you're going to do tonight. Because your will is free, and if it's free, God not only can't control it, he can't know it. Because if he knew it, it would imply some measure of control because he always is right in what he knows. And therefore, you'd have to do what he knew you were going to do. See? So in order to keep you free, these people are denying that God knows what you're going to do tonight. You can't be free if God knows what you're going to do tonight. Except insofar as a, a smart and savvy person could know with high degree of probability what you're going to do tonight because you're human and you're, you won't stand out in the cold and you, you'll, if you haven't had supper, you'll probably go home and eat. And, you know. But he has a lot of knowledge, so he can predict pretty well. But they all say, ultimately, can't know. Now, the, the argument is that they see a portrait of God in the Bible that is that way. So here's, here's some of his paragraphs. Moreover, while God knew that the first humans might sin and thus had options in mind, the overall picture of creation we find in Scripture is not that of a God who walked and talked in the garden with Adam and Eve already knowing with certainty that he was in the presence of those who would fail to follow his rules. They did not know that there would be a fall. We see, rather, the picture of a God who created humanity hoping that the right choices would be made and then deciding exactly what he would do in response to the decisions of his creatures. Also, we see in Scripture a God whose emotional responses, whose feelings, are frequently those of a being who did not know ahead of time exactly what was to occur. God is portrayed, for instance, as one who at times experiences profound disappointment at the outcome of certain states of affairs that he initiated. The flood story, for instance, portrays God as one who regretted that he created humanity given the dismal state of affairs at that point. In similar fashion, God regretted that he had made Saul king given what occurred as a result. And the regret in such cases appears to stem from the fact that the outcome was not what God had intended, a state of mind that is very hard to reconcile with the claim that he always has known exactly what will occur. In other words, if you see regret in God or a statement of disappointment in a way a person's acting, it implies he couldn't have known what was coming because it's irrational to say you can regret what you knew was going to happen when you planned that it happen, or that it be. Furthermore, we find in Scripture a God who is frequently disappointed, grieved by human decisions and behavior. God, for instance, was often very disappointed with the behavior of the Israelites and is disappointed with our failure to recognize his existence, power, and glory, Romans 1. And the disappointment in these cases also appears to stem from the fact that we as humans often do not act as God had hoped we would act. And they really mean uh, that he didn't know what we were going to do. On the other hand, God frequently responds joyfully to what occurs. After creation, God said that it was good. David at times did that which pleased God. God, we are told, is pleased every time a lost soul is saved. And mark this, such joy, it appears to us, is the result of the occurrence of states of affairs that God was not certain would actually come about. So in order for God to authentically rejoice in the salvation of a sinner, he can't have known ahead of time that it would certainly come about, which means, of course, he couldn't cause it to come about. That's a given. They don't even, they don't even argue at that level. My whole theology is rejected out of hand by these people. And they're going a step further and saying he can't even know that a person's going to get saved because if he knew ahead of time, then his joy wouldn't be as great or authentic. That's enough. You get the flavor. And uh, I find this um, a great dishonor to the Lord, to put it mildly, and uh, unfaithful to Scripture. So you need to know why these things are so important to me 
and why I think right where we are in redemptive history today and in American evangelicalism, we need to teach these things and we need to understand them and know why we believe what we believe and you need to wrestle with them yourself so that as people, as some of you, I know that some of you have relatives who debate you on this over Christmas holidays and other things and it's, it's just a, a huge thing. Who is God? Who is God? What is He like? Does He know? Does He shape? Does He control? Is He... I got an email yesterday from a pastor in Illinois deeply disturbed about a book published by a Bethel prof who holds this view. And I said, do you know about this? Have you read this? And I wrote back and said, I share your concern. Let's take a few more verses on the issue of God's sovereignly releasing us from the bondage of our blindness and sin and calling us to himself. You see, my, my battle is fought back. I think God knows the future because he makes the future. He knows what he's going to do. And so um, it's not hard for me to figure out how you can know the free acts of moral agents because I believe God controls the free acts of moral agents. We looked at Titus last time, remember, where it said God put it in his heart to go up to Corinth, and so he went of his own accord. <laughs> That's what I see in the Bible. God is able in mysterious and wonderful ways to see to it that his will is done by agents that do things of their own accord. Okay. Let's take a few of these here. For indeed Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now what this text illustrates is a, is a very crucial understanding of what the call of God means in New Testament theology, New Testament thinking. The call of God in this verse right here is not what Billy Graham will do in the Metrodome when he comes and bids people to believe. That's the external call of God that lands on believer and unbeliever, elect and non-elect, indiscriminately, we call people to believe. I preach on Sunday morning, I don't try to discern who the elect are and who they aren't. I don't know that, and it's not my business to know that. My business is to summon everyone to faith, to call everyone to faith. And when you do that, some respond and some don't, ultimately. What is that? Indeed, Jews ask for signs. Some people may say when they hear a call to repent, give me a sign. Greeks ask for wisdom, kind of philosophical sophistication. They might ask for that when they hear the call. But we preach Christ crucified to those Jews who are asking for signs. It turns out to be a stumbling block. To those Gentiles who are asking for that kind of wisdom, it turns out to be foolishness. But to those... Jews and those Greeks who are called, he is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Which means that this call here is not what they heard and stumbled over. This call here is not what they heard and counted as foolishness. This call is what causes people to recognize Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see how important that is? There is a call that is deeper and more effectual, if 
effective than when I preach. It happens in and through preaching. It happens in and through your witnessing. But it's not synonymous with the external invitation to come to Christ. That's regarded as foolishness when it's heard by some. It's regarded as a stumbling block when it's heard by others. But to those who... Now, what is this? To those who what? What other, what other word can we use to describe that? I would use the word um, new birth or regeneration. I think that's what he's talking about here. There are two kinds of call. The kind that is simply heard by the external ear, processed and rejected, and the kind of call that is so powerful it creates what it calls for. And the analogy, of course, is a call like Jesus standing at the grave of Lazarus, right? And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And the call creates the life. An analogy from your own experience would be if someone is asleep and you say, wake up, <laughs> and they go like that. Your call created what it asked for. You, you, your call said, wake up, and it was loud enough that it did what it said should be done. Okay? That's what God has the authority to do with people who are dead in sin. That's the way you and I got saved. At some point in our lives, God said, John, wake up! And my heart awoke to the glory of Christ. That's what happened. Question on that or Kim? Yes. Yes. I, I Right. Precisely. Yeah, I didn't mean to create the impression that every conversion is a sudden uh, awareness like that. I, I think from our subjective experiential standpoint, it is often a process, though I think there is a point that constitutes regeneration. There are no half-born people. You're born or you're not born. You're alive or you're dead. But in our... Maybe, and maybe they don't know where the place was. I think a lot of people move from unbelief to belief and they cannot put their finger on the point of regeneration. And I don't think we should fret about that. I don't you know, insist that everybody be able to give me a date and a time. The issue is, if you are now heartily trusting in Christ as Lord and Savior, this has happened to you. Whether you can point to when and how and where it happened, that's happened. And the evidence is you're alive. You know, if, if somebody comes along and says to you, I'm not sure I'm alive. Could you give me some evidence I'm alive? I would not look for their birth certificate. I'd poke them with a needle. And when they said, ouch, I'd say, you're alive. Same way with Christians. I don't ask for the decision card from the Billy Graham crusade. That may have been where it happened. I, I ask him, are you alive to Christ? Do you love him? Is it your intention today forward to follow him as Lord? He said, yes, you're alive. You're born of God. I don't care when it happened. Okay? Here's another illustration, Matthew 16. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you. Blessed, blessed. You've been blessed. You've been called. Are you Simon Barjona? Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Flesh and blood just means ordinary human processes. This, this preaching, mere preaching, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven, revealed it to you. So what Jesus seems to me to be saying in those verses is the recognition of Christ as the Messiah, the Son of the living God, in such a way that you're drawn into discipleship with Him, that is not, that's not anything human. That's a divine work of, of God in heaven. Flesh and blood 
can't do that. Flesh and blood can preach. Flesh and blood can give out tracts. Flesh and blood can teach. But only God can create the awareness, open the heart to the awareness. Here's another illustration from Matthew. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I praise thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou didst hide these things from the wise and intelligent and didst reveal them. It's the same revealing here. Reveal them to babes. Yes, Father, for thus it was well-pleasing in thy sight. All things have been handed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. There's another. That's the Son's revealing. This is the Father's revealing here. This is the Son's revealing. Anyone to whom the Son reveals him. No one knows God, nor does anyone know the Father, except the Son. Well, that, that's an amazing statement. That, that must mean something like, the kind of knowledge I'm talking of here is, is, the, is the kind that in the Trinity, the Son, through a, a deep love for His Father and union with His Father, has of the Father. Nobody has any, any knowledge of God like that. Except anyone to whom the Son wills to do that, to reveal Him. The reason I chose this one to put on the overhead is because what follows here is something that we, we need to feel is a natural outflow from the sovereignty of God in the revelation of Himself to sinners. Do not draw the inference, well, if God reveals himself to sinners, then we don't need to do this or that. Notice what follows. After he says, nobody knows the Son unless, or the Father unless the Son reveals him, he says, come to me. See, this is an appeal to our will. We must make a decision here. We don't sit and do nothing. We must heed these imperatives. Come to me, all you who weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's the condition and there's the promise. I'll give you rest. There's the condition and there's the promise. Take my yoke upon you. There's another choice we must make. The yoke of the teachings of Jesus upon you. And learn, choose to make yourself a student of me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And here's the promise. You will find rest. For your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So, at the experiential level of where we deal with people, we say to them, come, come. He is meek, he's lowly, he gives rest. His yoke is easy. We argue, we persuade, we plead. But all of that is prefaced by you're not going to know him unless he reveals himself to you. See? So keep it together. Let's keep it together in the Bible. Don't let your human logic spin out implications of the sovereignty of God that are unbiblical. Okay? It's more important to be biblical than to say what you think has to be in regard to a particular teaching here and there. Take, I don't know how long we should dwell on this. Let me just see how many more there are. I think I'll uh, skip over. I'll show you what I was going to show you, and you can just... I was going to do, I was going to do John 6, 44. No one can come unless the Father draw him. I was going to do John 1, 11, uh, that we are born not of, of, of uh, the will of the man, but of God. I was going to do John 5, 1, whoever believes has been born of God. But let's go to 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 4 on this issue of the universal saving will of God. The number one ob obstacle or objection biblically to what I've been teaching you, that God has the right and the authority to govern your will, especially in the matter of salvation, is that it seems to imply, well then, if he is the decisive willer in who gets saved, then he must not will for everybody to get saved or everybody would get saved. That's the main argument. 
And then the text behind that, and it's a good observation, a very important objection to raise and an important problem to solve. This text here. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, or that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Okay. Now you can add to this 2 Peter 3.9 says something very similar. He's not willing that any should perish. That's what 2 Peter 3.9 says. And you can add to it Ezekiel 18.23. He does not delight in the death of the wicked. In verse 32, same thing. Well, those, because those are three pillar texts. I'm giving you the texts that are usually brought against my theology as the biggest problem. Don't want to hide the biggest problem from you. Um, these three texts, and there may be one or two more, but these, as far as the, the pillar texts of Arminianism, which is the opposite of what I'm thinking, uh, these would be, this would be the key one, and those would be the others. So the question I must raise now, if I'm going to teach as biblical, the fact that God rules the world so completely that he is the final and decisive cause of who believes and only some believe, then how can we say that he desires all men to be saved? Or they all would be saved, wouldn't they? If he has that much authority and power and right. And you see that the solution that is offered to this usually is God does desire all men to be saved and the reason all men are not saved is because they have free will. And God can't override free will. Otherwise, he turns them into non-human robots. And so, his desire is frustrated and he is willing to live with that for the sake of love because he would rather have authentic personal relations with free people than inauthentic, automatic relations with robots. That's the argument. Now, question? Go ahead, please. Wendy said <clears throat> maybe part of an answer already in this text is that he's calling for prayer for all these people rather than preaching to them. I'm trying to read between the lines. You're saying... Would he ask God for to do something if God didn't have the right to do it? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's a pointer. I think it is. In fact, that, that's very closely related to what I'm going to show you here now. Now, notice the wording here before I put up this other text. I want to, you know, in, you, in trying to solve problems like this, um, it's safest, I believe, it's, it, it honors the author of the particular book most if you can stay close to the book rather than jumping way back to Genesis or jumping to Romans or jumping somewhere else and pulling in a verse and saying, well, this can't mean this because it says in Matthew or Romans or somewhere. Uh, that's legitimate if you're careful to interpret in its context what each verse is saying instead of just kind of pulling them out of context and smushing them together and making them shape each other. But uh, this is 1 Timothy. Now, we all know that 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus are kind of a unit. They're, they're called the pastoral letters. They, they have a vocabulary of their own. They're uh, written to these two, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, are written to Timothy in Ephesus at similar times. And so if I, the, the language is very similar. Now, notice this. Here... Here we have him saying he desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now the text that I read for our devotion at the beginning is the one I'm going to look at next. I'll put them together here. Uh, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps, perhaps, God may grant them to repent, them repentance 
leading to a knowledge of the truth. See this? He desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is the same phrase. It's very interesting. It occurs a couple of times in the pastoral letters. Now notice something. This is really surprising. This, is, this was so helpful to me years ago when I noticed I didn't have to go outside of 1st and 2nd Timothy to find that Paul says both things and not just one thing. Here you have Paul saying God desires all men to be saved and to come to this knowledge of the truth. And here you have him saying God may grant a person to repent and come to that knowledge of the truth. You know, if I just, just, just take that one off the scene, okay? That's the Arminian verse. This is the Calvinist verse. Okay? This is my verse. They're both my verses, I hope. But I, I just want you to see, if, if you want to play the pick and choose game, you can make a real strong case by just reading this verse and say, you, Pastor John, you be a good, non-quarrelsome, kind, patient, gentle corrector of those in opposition and God may, he may not, but he may give sovereignly repentance, change of mind and lead people into a knowledge of the truth. And I could you know, be strong about that's in God's power. Or I put this one on the table and say, how, how do people come to a knowledge of the truth? Well, God desires all people to come to a knowledge of the truth. And so clearly, if they don't come to a knowledge of the truth, it's their decisive doing alone. And I can make an Arminian case for that, from that verse. Okay? Now, these are not two authors competing with each other. Verna? And I'm arguing that he's a soil maker. He's the soil maker. He decides whose heart is going to be receptive or not. That's, that's the implication of all these texts I've been looking at. Greg? That wouldn't necessarily be at odds with... That, that may be a true thing, uh, a true statement, that that's an implication here. But it still, I think, wouldn't necessarily solve the problem of uh, God's desire here and his allowing uh, his desire to be frustrated by something. Uh, the absence of prayers. I mean, he calls us to pray. He says, pray. Like Paul prayed, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. Romans 10.1 And if we don't pray then I think it grieves the Holy Spirit. Grieves it. Um, and I think he can be grieved by allowing a person not to do what he... And let's just forget the word allow. By uh, causing a person to do what he doesn't want them to do. And I'm getting ahead of myself here. I'm getting ahead of myself. Here's what I want to take you into some text to ask. See if you can see if you can handle this. Be open to this. It seems to me that by this text, and I'm going to show you a bunch of others. We have time. Yes, we have time. That God, we must think in terms of God as having um, two wills. That is, God has the capacity to will something in one sense that he doesn't will in another sense. A little simple analogy. Go ahead, DJ. Yes, that would be one of my examples. Yeah, you... That's exactly what I'm going to say. That's one, I've got about five lines of evidence. That's one of them. 
um, that God has the Ten Commandments, and you can say, are the Ten Commandments the will of God for humanity? Answer, yes. Does he ever will that somebody murder another person? Yes. I think God wills everything. See? So if God wills everything, that is, if, if his providence so controls the universe as to control sin, then you have to say, well, wait a minute. Murder, it says, thou shalt not commit murder. So they are not acting according to the will of God when they kill, and yet you say he controls all things such that he could have stopped that, but he didn't stop it. He willed that it come to pass, so he wills that it come to pass what he disapproves of. And the answer is yes. That's what I believe. Now, the question is, is that biblical? Is that just a logical construct that I'm creating? Or is there biblical evidence of that? Well, here's the beginning of the biblical evidence. If I let this stand, he desires all men to be saved, and I let this stand, he gives some people repentance and the knowledge of the truth, then I've got to say, well, in the one sense, he's willing for this person to be saved, and in another sense, he may not willing to be saved. You see the beginnings of it here? That's, it just seems to me, if I'm, if I'm going to let both of those sentences stand, God may grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. God desires all men to come to a knowledge of the truth. It just seems to me like on the face of it, you're either going to reject one of those texts going to reinterpret one of those texts, or you're going to let them stand and say, God can do both. That's, what, that's my approach. God can do both. He, he desires all men to be saved in some sense, and he grants repentance and the knowledge of the truth in another sense. All right? But I, want to, I, I don't want to leave, leave you at that. I want to take you to some other passages of Scripture that get at this. So what I'm going to do now is, is develop a few lines of evidence that God wills that some things come to pass which he disapproves of. So he has two wills, two ways of willing. So here's, here's the first line of evidence, namely the cross of Jesus. The cross. Did he will that Jesus be crucified and did it take sin to bring it about? Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know this man, know, just you yourselves know, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So what he's saying here is that Jesus was delivered up. That means Judas and the disciples who ran away and didn't give any help and the soldiers who handed him over to Annas and Caiaphas and Herod who handed him back over to Pilate after mocking him with his purple robe. All of that was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. So I, I, I just I can't imagine that in this room anybody would say that the death of Jesus at the hands of wicked men was not the will of God. Anybody want to argue that? Yeah, that's right. Well, I, I agree. So it was his will that Christ die. It's glorious. It's our salvation that he sent Christ to die. And I don't know whether you're reading through the Bible right now in Psalm 22, but a couple of us, I mean some of us, have just read Psalm 22, and Psalm 22 has in it all those prophecies about, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And others that show that the 
death of Christ was just, it was detailed. The, the, the beatings, the 30 pieces of silver, the cry on the cross, the not a bone being broken, was all detailed out and planned by God. It was the will of the Lord to bruise him. Surely our, he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we ourselves esteem him stricken, but the Lord was pleased to bruise, to crush him, putting him to grief. This is God's doing. God was at work all the way through. This was, this, the nail driver was his father. His father killed him. Truly in this city they were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel, to do what thy hand predestined to take place. The Gentiles sinned, the peoples of Israel sinned, Herod sinned, Pontius Pilate sinned, because God willed it for our salvation. Now if that's true, See, the cross to me is the essence of everything. And that's why so many theological issues get solved at the cross. The cross is the place that is clearly the will of God and it was the worst sin that's ever been committed in the history of humankind. There is no greater sin than killing the Son of God. And that was what God planned. Therefore, he must have two ways of willing. He willed that evil come to pass in the wicked Herod Pilate soldiers and, and Jewish crowds crying, crucify him, crucify him. He willed that it come to pass through those means. And yet he disapproves of people crying, crucify him, crucify him. He disapproves of people driving nails into the hands of his son. Thou shalt not kill. He disapproves of envy, which was driving the heart of, of uh, Pilate. So somehow, and we don't need to solve this entirely, somehow God wills that something be which in another way of willing he disapproves of. Question on that or observation, PJ? I don't know if I can say much about how. The question was, can I say something about how we are held morally accountable if God wills our actions. And uh, what I can say is, and um, I've, I've said it before in his, and I'll say it again, um, is that the prerequisites of moral accountability are not moral ability but physical ability. Moral ability means I'm good enough to do what I know I should do. Physical ability means that I would do it if I wanted to. But I may not want to because I'm so bad I don't want to. Now, if you're so bad, if you're so blind and so bad you don't want to do something, you're still guilty for not doing it. Even if God has ultimately set things up so that it is that way. Because the prerequisite for moral accountability is simply, I have to have the mental framework to know the right, and I have to have the occasion to do it. But if I don't want to do it, if I hate the right, and thus can't do it, I'm still responsible to do it. Now, if you, if you say, uh, I don't see how God can rule the will and we still be accountable, I would simply plead with you to live with that mystery. I, I do. To me, that is not a logical contradiction. It is a philosophical stress point on the basis of your assumptions. See, here's the philosophical assumption that you have to ask whether it's true. In order to be held accountable, by God, I, and not God, have to have the final and decisive cause in my willing. That's an assumption. It's a philosophical 
metaphysical assumption. I believe it is unbiblical and therefore untrue. It's not a, it's not a logic issue. Question, was there a question over here? The wrath of God is revealed. This is Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, His invisible nature, namely His eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse. Or I would paraphrase, so they are accountable. And so the, the logic here is, what does the so refer to? So, they are accountable. The so refers back to the fact that they know what they need to know. They know his eternal power and deity. And then look, look at the following verse, verse 21. For, so it's they are without excuse, that is they are accountable. For, although they knew God, that's the physical ability I'm talking about. They have eyes, they have a brain, they're processing the data that's out there about what, they, what God expects from them. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. So they're still accountable. Even though their, sense, their, their minds have become senseless, they become futile, they become dark, and therefore they're suppressing the truth, Paul says their brains have perceived God and they know that he is two things, um, powerful and divine, and therefore they are without excuse. That's my main text. Even if I didn't have a text, I would wind up saying... Um, since I see these teachings in Scripture that um, God has ultimate sway over the wills of moral beings and the Bible clearly holds those moral beings accountable to do what's right and to trust God, I would say, hmm, okay, both of those are possible. Philosophically, I am going to get my philosophical presuppositions from what I see there in Scripture. And I will take it and affirm it. That's my approach. Now that's one line of evidence for the fact that God wills one thing which He disapproves in another sense. The cross of Jesus is the first line of evidence. Here's another one. Um, this one gets closer to what DJ was saying. Um, the use of the word will of God, the, the phrase will of God, what does that mean in the Bible, the will of God? I'm going to show you two, kind, two groups of texts that have two very different meanings. Okay? Here's the first one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. So that use of the term will of God, the will of my Father, is something you could do, and if you do it, you enter heaven. If you don't do it, you don't enter heaven. So that's something you might not do. So here's a will of God that you can frustrate. Okay? So far with me? Here's another one. Whoever does the will of my Father, Matthew 12, 50, who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Well, not everybody is his brother and sister and mother, so here's a will of God you cannot do. God says, this is my will, and I say, no, thank you, and I do an opposite thing. He said, okay, you didn't do my will. So there is a will of God that you cannot do. That's not a sovereign will. That's the distinction you were making. 1 John 2, 17, the world is passing away, also it's lust. 
but the one who does the will of God abides forever. Well, everybody doesn't abide forever, so some people aren't doing the will of God. So there is a way to talk about the willing of God that doesn't come to pass, right? 1 Peter 4, 2. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Okay. Now, that's the way most people use the will of God. The will of God is... They say, what's the will of God for my life? Or what's the will of God about abortion? Or what's the will of God about this or that? means, what does God want to happen? What's the moral thing? What's the right thing to do? And then you either do it or don't do it. So I'm, as a Calvinist who believes that God has... Uh, control of all things, I say, all right, in the Bible, the, the, the phrase will of God is something that can be rejected. Okay? Now, let's, use, let's see another use of this term, however. Any question about those texts before I jump on? Go ahead. Right. Yes. Well, especially his character, on, I mean, all those, the Ten Commandments, and all the other commandments of the Bible express the moral character of God. That's right. That's right. We'll, we'll get even closer to that issue of, of uh, the, the universal will of God to save people so that one of the conclusions I'm going to draw tonight, especially if we get far enough, is that as a Calvinist, who believes that God ultimately decides who is saved and who's not, I believe we can authentically and biblically look everybody in the face and say, God loves you. Now, let's move to that systematically here. Here's another list of texts. Now, notice the difference of the meaning of the word will of God, the phrase will of God. 1 Peter 3.17 for it is better to suffer for doing right if that should be God's will than for doing wrong. It is better to suffer for doing right if that suffering should be God's will. Now, what does that mean? That means it is better to do right and if God wills that it happen, be thrown in jail, then not to do right. So there, the will of God is not something that you decide. That's God's decision about whether you get persecuted or not, whether you go to jail or not. 1 Peter 4.19, Let those who suffer according to God's will do right and entrust their souls to a faithful creator. So, if you are being persecuted, then that's God's decision that you get persecuted. You don't have any control. Amos 3.6 Does evil befall a city unless the Lord has done it? Answer, no. So, here's the will of God determining whether evil befalls a city or not. This is not something that I decide to happen or not. God's deciding whether it happens. Isaiah 45, 7. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light, create darkness, I make wheel, wheel and create woe. I am the Lord who do all these things. Let's drop down here to this New Testament text. Acts 18, 21. On taking leave of the saints in Ephesus, he said, I will return to you if God wills. That means... God decides whether my boat sinks. God decides whether I get sick and die. God decides whether I'm coming back here or not. That's a very different use of the word will than if you do the will of God, you will abide forever. Paul's going to do the will of God here when the boat goes down, whether he likes it or not. You know, if the boat sinks and he dies and doesn't get to Ephesus, that's the will of God. But it's a very different use of the will of God. To the Corinthians, he wrote... I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. Meaning if God, ruling the circumstances of my life, gets me there. Again, I do not want to see you, I, I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. 
There again, the will of God used very differently than the moral will of God. This is the sovereign. These are the names that theologians have, have put on these is the moral will or the sovereign will. You used the word preferential will. That's okay. The moral will and the sovereign will. Sovereign will, he controls everything that comes to pass. Moral will, he tells you what is right to do with your will. And they can be opposites, I'm arguing. But he can will that Christ die while commanding thou shalt not kill Messiahs. The writer to the Hebrews says that his intention is to leave the elementary things behind and press to maturity, but then he pauses and adds, and this we will do if God permits. That's an amazing one because you can hardly imagine God not permitting us to leave the elementary things behind and pressing on to maturity, but that's what he says. This we will do if God permits. And then we've looked at this text in James before about uh, when you go up to such and such place, Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. I've got a whole other page of these, but I think I'll skip them because we've looked at so many of them before. Let me see if you have a question about this. Do you, what I've done now in these last two pages of text is try to show you two biblical uses of the phrase, will of God. One group... Make sure you get it here. So put it up here. One group says, um, whoever does the will of my Father, or let's use this one since it actually says will of God. The world is passing away and it lusts, and the lusts of it, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. So some do the will of God and some don't. If you do the will of God, you abide forever. If you don't do the will of God, you don't abide forever. So will of God here is the moral standards of God. Including faith in Jesus Christ. Whereas when it says, I will return to you if God wills, that's God's sovereign control of the circumstances of my life and the wills of the people around me who might kill me or not. That's very different from the moral standards of God. Question about that? Or observations? Or. Are you with me? This is my second line of evidence that there are, the Bible uses the will of God in two different ways. Go ahead, Vernon. My, my argument is that you are right and you are wrong. That is, he does not will anybody to perish in one sense. He is desirous for all to be saved in one sense. And then there are many scriptures that teach he decisively determines who gets saved and who doesn't. You got saved, Verna, and the only way I got saved is that God softened our hearts. God overcame the hardness of my heart. I did not, I did not produce soft, so, soft heart or, or make my soil good. Ah, so you and I disagree on that. Okay, I'm just trying to give biblical evidence. You'll all make up your own minds. And uh, that's fine. We're all in process here and growing in our understanding, and, and I'm growing, 
in my understanding, and I may get a better angle on this someday as I continue to study. Let me give you another line of evidence, okay? Oops, two minutes. Um, now this one gets right at Verna's word about hardening. My other line of evidence is that God, for example, here in Exodus, says, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. That's the moral will of God. Let them go, Pharaoh. That's my will. Let them go. And Exodus 4.21 says, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all these wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let you go. Now, Verna, this is not written after that, but before, and it is not a response to his self-hardening. This is a prophecy. I will do this. I'm going to say, let my people go, and I'm going to see to it that he doesn't let them go. It is a complex thing because as the chapters flow from chapter 4 to verse four, chapter 14, there are, I think, seven times that God says he will harden his heart and he will harden his own heart. And uh, I spent about seven years working on this. And because year after year, as I taught at Bethel College, and tried to uphold the sovereignty of God, students would come back and they would point out problems uh, like what you're pointing out. And, and so I studied and studied and studied and then I wrote this book, The Justification of God. But if, you want to, if you want to see my most thorough final effort, it's a whole chapter on these chapters right here on the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in the justification of God. That's my most complex and difficult book. That's why nobody reads it. But it's, it's probably the most important book that I've ever written and the one that may last the longest in the long run because it is the most thorough treatment of Romans 9 according to Richard Muller who teaches at Calvin Seminary. The, the most thorough exegetical treatment of Romans 9 that he knows about in the history of the church because I spent so much time just working on a few little pieces of verses. And uh, that doesn't prove anything about its truth or validity, but if you want to see the complexity that, that Vern is pointing out, struggled with, go to that chapter. You don't have to read the whole book. Just read the chapter on the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. But I, I'll let you decide what this word right here, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, means so that he will not let my people go in relationship to let my people go. I'm putting it there as a, a third line of evidence that in the Bible, the will of God is understood in two senses. One is moral and one is sovereign. The moral will of God is what we ought to do given what God says we ought to do and the sovereign will of God is what's going to happen under God's control. And to me, the cross is the most compelling line of evidence, but these are all subordinate line of evidences. And I've got one, two, three more. And we're done for tonight. But I think I probably will take one more week on this. And then I'm going to stop, because we've been on the providence of God long enough, probably. But one more week, maybe. And I'll just open it up for a lot more questions, if you want to, to if I've missed things about this that you want to, and please, please, uh, say this to Verna, I say it to others of you for whom she, I'm sure, has the courage to speak, 
uh, don't feel like if you are not where I am on this yet, that, that you can't be here at Bethlehem or you can't ask questions or something like that because these are difficult, difficult issues and uh, I'm very sympathetic with the process that it, you have to go through often with tears to make headway one way or the other through the biblical text. So though I speak forcefully, though I believe strongly, though I'd lay down my life for this view, I really would, I think it's that important, uh, I, I do not insist that you have to be where I am on this at any particular time. We'll, we'll all find out the precise solution to these things when in the twinkling of an eye the trumpet sounds and get our theology straightened out in the end. But I am not one who thinks it's insignificant and uh, therefore I will devote my life here at Bethlehem as long as God enables me to keep on teaching these things and commending them to you and urging you to seriously consider them and hopefully embrace them because I think uh, the very nature of God hangs on them, the nature of humility hangs on them, the nature of faith hangs on them, the nature of our ministry hangs on them, missions hangs on it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, just like we said at the beginning, if, if we're on to the right track in 2 Timothy 2.26 that you may perchance grant repentance and a knowledge of the truth, then I lay it now in your hands. And I ask that you would grant it. If I'm right, Lord, if, if we've seen right things about your will here, then I ask that you would grant changes of mind and bring us all to the truth. And if I'm wrong, I pray that I would be changed and come to a fuller knowledge of the truth. You're the one who's infallible, not us. And we are longing, digging, yearning to get into your word, to shape our minds after yours. So now, Lord, apply these things to us in such a way that we have more courage and more boldness to speak the truth in love as we move through this week. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much for being here.